Hi everyone, this is Morgan Phelps with Acuity Brands. Welcome back to the Women in Sustainability Design the Future podcast. We have created this podcast to elevate the voices of women driving sustainable practices in the built environment. We hope you find their stories inspirational and helpful to the work that you do. The hosts for these conversations are industry veterans, Lindsay Baker and Kiara Gold. Let's get started. Hi, everyone. Thanks so much for joining us again this week on Women in Sustainability Design the Future. We're so happy to have you back and we're excited for a fun conversation this week. Um, this is Lindsay. And this is Kira. And yeah, um, I'm looking forward to checking in with you. How is, how's it going? How are you feeling? It's going fine. You know, it's, things are, it's a good week. Not too bad. Yeah, that's um, good. The usual stuff. <laughs> the usual craziness that we exactly. experience on a daily basis these days. Yeah. That's right. You adapt yeah. the other direction. Yeah. Um, but, but it is strange. It's a really different pattern, but I think I'm, I'm, I'm used to it too. Although there is a little competition in my household about who gets to go out to get something. Oh um, yeah. 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 It's usually, it's, it's good. It's good. Yeah. We have a little bit of that going on as well. <laughs> Sort of like, wait, what? You're doing something? What? Yeah, what is that? <laughs> <laughs> I want to do something. Um, yeah, no, I I hear you. That's that's the thing we're experiencing too. Um, as as we've talked about, it it kind of has just put the focus a little bit more, at least for me, on what else I want to be spending my time thinking about, you know. And so it takes a little bit away. That like it takes some of the the noise away from your life when you sitting and focusing all the time. Um, so I'm thankful for that, weirdly thankful for that. Yeah. I think it's interesting too, um, and maybe this is just um, because of fire season here in California where we are, um, but it does seem like the, um, you know, and this is something I've been talking about for several months, but the, the overlap, the sort of pandemic and climate um, overlap is becoming a little bit more, I'm hearing more and more talk about that. Um, and uh, there was a piece actually in CNN, Bill Weir did a piece about sort of a number of things that were sort of demonstrating or, or highlighting that alignment. Um, and it's been a little while now, but I, I wanted to mention it because I feel like maybe it's just because it's so much more front and center for the Californians that are dealing with the fire, because that feels like a climate thing that's right in front of us, literally, um, while we're still dealing with the pandemic. So maybe that, and you know me, Lindsay, I keep, I'm so hopeful that having those things overlap will actually move us faster, <laughs> propel yeah. us a little bit. Um, but he, Bill laid out these five things that I wanted to mention. So there, that's, that sort of demonstrate the overlap, which is science denial can be deadly. Uh, the second one is the search for a cure is global, but your chances of survival are local. Uh, the third one is individual behavior saves lives, but can't fix the problem. The fourth one is humanity is capable of fast sweeping changes. That one, you know, I'm pinning my hopes on that. <laughs> yeah. um, and in the age of the fifth one, in the age of threat multipliers, the health of your body depends on the health of the planet now more than ever. So those uh. are the little layers I've been thinking about this week. Those are so good. I love, I love all of them. Um, yeah. And, and it is, I mean, I think that is, those dynamics are all some of the, um, 
some of the most important, um, I don't know, awakenings that we're watching mm -hmm. people go through. And it's yep. so, so um, it, it does give that sense that there is a real opportunity in this. Um, yeah, no, I totally feel that. That That is, that is a super cool. <laughs> I'll have to go and um, check out the longer um, piece and uh, learn more, but yeah, I, I, I think that's true. And, and I think, you know, I was, um, I'm teaching now, um, at this class at UC Berkeley and one of the students asked me sort of a, a question, uh, the other day about, uh, fighting against climate change and how, how it feels to be a part of a fight that isn't the highest priority fight right now, you know, and they said, do you worry that you aren't going to get enough sort of attention about your issue because people are so worried about other things. And I think they particularly named the pandemic and also issues around social justice. And it was, it, you know, was my first opportunity, I'm sure of, of many to, many to talk about intersectionality and the ways in which those of us who are fighting these fights really, m many of us anyway, who are fighting these fights, see them as fundamentally interconnected and much more so, I think, even than we did a year ago, and and that yeah. that 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 brings some solidarity that we need very fundamentally in the world. Absolutely, um, yes. Yeah, yeah. That's so great. I mean, that that student really really teed you up there. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I mean, I think when you start getting introduced to some of these struggles, it can feel very overwhelming if you think about them as somehow separate from each other because it's such a to, what a to-do list it is you know um but um uh, it is both a tragedy and also a convenience that they are all actually just one big thing yes. <laughs> you know? yes. in, in many ways um, no it's a great it's a great thing to talk about with the students and it's a really it is um, empowering about because you don't have to put one down and focus on the other and give it time and energy and then and then go back to the other thing they are yeah. all one thing yeah. so yeah that's great I think it's also about depth it's about really understanding beyond the superficial level of the challenge that we're facing what are the deeper causes what are the deeper more embedded yep. uh, aspects of our culture and our lives that are making these things happen if you see it just too much on the surface of course it looks quite different but yeah um, you know, no it's true that's true <laughs> and that's something that i think sustainability has always suffered a little bit from because you know in order to start doing it we had it was really there was a lot at the beginning it was really energy focused um and it was so much more complex than that and most people knew that but we had to start at the you know even in terms of the market transformation that had to start with energy um and not all of the rest but it was leading to a much more holistic exercise yeah it is and okay so speaking of holistic um <laughs> and 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 uh, getting to um our core purpose and uh and calling in life um let's introduce our guest for the day leith sharp hi welcome leith Hi. Hi. Thanks, Nancy. Thanks, Kira. It's wonderful to be with you this morning or this evening, wherever everybody is in the world. That's right. That's right. Yes. Thank you for thank you for being with us in such different time zones. We're so happy to have you. We are. We're delighted you've joined us. And I'm going to um, just 
give a little quick background on Leith because she's doing so many amazing things. Um, Leith Sharp has taught leadership for sustainability at Harvard for 18 years. She founded the Executive Education for Sustainability Leadership Program there in 2014. And it's, it uh, is a cross-sector program that brings sustainability, leadership, human well-being, purpose, biomimicry, agility, integrated business models, and organizational design together. In 2017, she co-founded the Leaders on Purpose program to engage global CEOs in defining and scaling a new leadership paradigm and business logic to deliver on the UN Sustainable Development Goals. She is also known for founding Harvard's Office of Sustainability, excuse me, where over nine years she led Harvard to become a global leader in campus sustainability. So those are a lot of hats over time and um, Leith, I would love to get started if we could by having you just tell us a little bit about how and why you got involved in sustainability and in leadership education. Um, just maybe what has been your path? Oh yeah, gosh. <clears throat> and uh, in a minute. <laughs> you can so, wait a minute. <laughs> oh, thank you. Um, well, I will try to keep it short though, because. <clears throat> yeah, boy, when you think back on your own life, there are so many layers, aren't there? Um, I think um, a key um, turning point in my path actually was the role of my mum. And um, I was planning to be a musician, a professional musician, um, a jazz musician. And it was my mother that um, very wisely encouraged me to take a gap year between high school and university to really explore um, the world of jazz, uh, you know, the life of the jazz musician. So I took that gap year and played a lot of music, hung out with a lot of jazz musicians. And in the time that <laughs> gap year, I, I did notice two key things. One was that I didn't really have the self-discipline to practice um, much enough. And the second one was all of the jazz musicians that I hung out with seemed quite miserable and broke. And um, <clears throat> although they were very good. Um, and so I think she knew that I was gonna have that discovery given enough time and exposure and then chose her moment brilliantly to hand me this pamphlet on this new program in environmental engineering that had just begun in Australia. And she encouraged me to just do this, even though I personally had no sense of myself as being an engineer but at the time I'd started to really feel unanchored with my vision and she was like well you know you're very good at science just just try it and see what you think well she was so spot on because as soon as I started the program um, it really woke something up in me particularly there was one course and the very first class in this course offered by a professor by the name of Ronnie Harding, and she was a long-term environmental academic, um, sustainability academic, well before her time at this university. And she walked in that first class, and this is, we're talking 1991, and laid out in front of all of our young minds, the state of the world, what had led to it, and the trajectory that we were on, um, covering everything from climate change to biodiversity to soil erosion to inequality, you name it, she laid it all out. And I literally left that class 
um, shocked, stunned, and my life was never the same again, actually. And I, I feel that if I were to look back on almost 30 years now has been a response to that first class, which sowed the seeds of two questions um, deeply in, in my soul, which were, how did I not know this? And why isn't everybody like talking about it all the time? And it was so incredible hearing Greta Thunberg have such a similar uh, narrative to um, the passion that, that she was trying to awake in people, but also thinking that there have been young people being stunned into that awakening for 30 or 40 years now, probably many more. And I think if you come from any kind of Indigenous roots, then it's been intergenerationally um, stunning to have this on ongoing state of feeling like you're existing in between a state of awakeness of awakening and a state of falling back asleep and the psychological um i guess the emotional resourcing that you need in order to stay awake um, in a culture that is constantly dosing you with the stimulus to fall back asleep um, that then requires you um, as a human being to, and I think the one of the five things did you list out, Kira, that was so brilliant that um, maybe the answer is global, but your own survival is local. Mm -hmm. um, it's the same for the survival of your hope, your own sense of hope. It, that, that has to be earned through your own action. Um, in this in this context, because if you're only thinking, um, you know, abstractly and getting involved in the intellectual part of it, but you're not acting, I think that's a sure way to depression and disengagement. So I became very active as a student <clears throat> straight away. It was all my body wanted to do was get in the way of the bulldozers um, heading for the trees or get out there in front of the warships coming into the harbour. I just wanted to physically express the, um, the reflex that I had in, in coming into this awakening. After a couple of years, um, that kind of direct activism, I then became engaged in the, the student union at the university, pretty much didn't go to any of my engineering classes for about a year. Mm -hmm. Um, and became the student union's environmental director. And through that, it started to actually work inside the university, starting up carpooling programs in a permaculture garden um, and actually lobbying the university with my fellow student activists to have an environment policy. We're now talking 1993. Mm -hmm. And the we were successful, the, the university adopted an environment policy and we'd lobbied them with the help of our academic mentor, Ronnie Harding at the time, to have the university fund a sustainability officer for the university to now implement this policy. Well, that um, job was posted and I was in my last year of university and a few people said I should go for it, even though I hadn't graduated yet. So I decided to go for it 
and um, got my hair cut and got a suit and all the, all the way thinking, how could I possibly get employed for a job when I'm still, a, you know, I haven't even graduated yet. But sure enough, I, I ended up getting um, the job. And I remember in that interview, I'm now, um, what am I, 23 years old? It's, I think, 1995. And I'm sitting in the interview and there are people that have come in to compete for this job that had 10 years of experience. And I really didn't think I had a chance. Afterwards, I asked them, why did I get the job? And they said there was one question that you were the only one that answered it in the way that the, the committee wanted it answered. And, and to this day, I remember the question and it was, if you were if you had this role in this university and you were pursuing an idea here and you had the support of everybody except for one academic, what would you do? And I remember um, because I'd been a student ad activist inside the institution, I had just intuitively developed a very um, consensus-oriented approach of building support because I had no formal power as a student. So you could really only get things done by winning hearts and minds. Mm -hmm. So I answered the question, well, I would spend time with that person and try to understand why they are against this idea. Um, and I would expect that I might learn something from that that would possibly make the process of bringing the idea to fruition better. Mm -hmm. um, and if the person was unable to come on board, I would involve the, the rest of the support team in thinking about whether or not we needed to give this more time. And right. um, that was the answer they wanted. And what they were picking up on and what I intuitively knew has also informed my entire career path because as I've, I've developed my professional um, uh, experience and I've built um, access, more access to formal power, but all the way I've understood that formal power has such profound limitations when it comes to humans <laughs> and that actually to really foster change in healthy ways, in ways that are going to build trust and, and build the fabric of the community, um, there was always a profound responsibility for fostering connection um, and healthy dialogue and deploying active listening and building that, you know, that stakeholder ecosystem around the journey. Um, and that has stayed with me through my career. Now, from that role, so I, I secured that role, one of the first um, sustainability officers of a university in the world, there probably were four or five others at that time in the world was in that role for about five years and managed to burn myself out because um, coming into that role as such a young person and being fueled really by this profound calling, really, um, what you end up doing is putting your body, um, forgetting about your own body and being so driven. And the scale of the problem is so vast that, there is no time in the day where you can say, well, that's done. I could go home now. Um, mm -hmm. So 
after five years, I was very, very tired, but we had achieved an extraordinary amount at that university. Um, one of my mentors, who was the pro vice chancellor, Jane Morrison, I'll never forget the role of these two women, Ronnie Harding and, and Jane Morrison in mentoring me as a, as a young woman coming into these very complex, highly politically charged organizations and the way they each mentored me in very, very different ways. Jane Morrison supported me to get a um, Churchill Fellowship and um, had really mentored my efforts in navigating the complexity of the decision-making arena of uh, academic institutions and then um, encouraged me to go out into the world as an as a next thing and expand um, my ambitions at the same time I was burnt out so I literally took another gap year and took this Churchill fellowship studied abroad and that's ultimately what led to being recruited to Harvard mm -hmm. um, there was a series of unlikely events where I ended up the Churchill fellowship the intention of it is to go abroad and learn from others um, I wanted to learn what other universities around the world were doing to, in order to integrate sustainability into the heart and soul of their mission and their business, their campus. And to my dismay, we're now in 1999, I found very little um, out there that had gone further than our effort in Australia. So then people started asking me to present on that case story. So I started spending more and more of my Churchill Fellowship presenting our case story. Um, somebody from Harvard saw me presenting at a workshop, invited me over, they had a breakfast. Um, and at the end of hearing that case story, Jack Spengler um, literally took me to breakfast the next day with a colleague of his and they offered me a job if I would agree to come back for a year and try to do there what we did in Australia with our university. Right. Um, and at that university, we had implemented a, a wide array of um, campus-focused sustainability initiatives and we were quite ahead of our time, but we didn't know that because Australia is an island <laughs> away from everyone else. And we always assume everybody else has got it figured out. If only we could get off the island to learn. Um, yeah, yeah, so then you were at Harvard. For, yeah, from 2000 on. Um, and this was a very different ball game. I took a lot of the lessons from the Australian University, but Harvard, as we all know, I mean, it, it's such an incredible institution. It's so complex it's so vast it's an incredibly decentralized enterprise each of the um, schools at harvard act like an independent university that shares a heating system uh, with the other 10 or 12 of them and so it began a very different level of learning how you foster that kind of stakeholder shared ownership and really push sustainability into the core of the mission of the institution um, yeah and there's a lot a lot that and then at that time and I think this is when we met Kira this mm -hmm. was um, an era in Harvard's life so Harvard is you know 380 ish years old but this decade from the year 2000 onwards was the decade that in, involved the most aggressive growth and development um, building construction was, was 
going through the roof there. I mean, buildings, it looked like they were just exploding out of the ground. Uh, the endowment had been going extremely well and there was a lot of investment in growing and renewing the campus. So turning up there in 2000, the sustainability enterprise absolutely had to have green building at its heart uh, because that was both the physical manifestation of the institution's values mm -hmm. as well as the, the stimulus for the culture um, and of the people that, that occupied the institution. So to enact uh, a sustainability vision there without having green buildings at the, at the heart of it would have been um, quite an absurdity. So uh, the, the focus on green buildings was absolutely central while this very aggressive development decade was afoot, which obviously slowed down in 2008 when the um, global financial crisis hit, but not before more buildings had been <laughs> uh, constructed in that decade than probably the five decades that preceded it. Right, you were really deep in the built environment world in that role, it seems like. Um, can you talk a little bit about how that has informed your thinking? Yes, so um, this is what I, I think the, the green building movement um, in the US really came alive um, in that decade as well. We saw the emergence of uh, the USGBC and several other green building um, initiatives around the country uh, in that same decade, which gave us a whole movement to ground our campus efforts in which was extremely helpful. Um, and one of the things I think in the green building space that has been so, so very helpful to me um, in learning so much more and really profoundly deepening my broader sustainability leadership understanding is that each building project, you have a story. Um, each, whether it's a renovation or a new construction, but here's a story that you're going to travel through together with your project team, your clients, your owners, your suppliers, your contractors. There's a whole community that comes together and goes on a journey together that has a distinct arc. And at the end of it, you can look at this legacy of that story. Um, many other sustainability arenas don't offer you the same kind of discrete community working together on a distinct arc of a story that then gives you something really clear to look at to understand how well did you do <laughs> um, which means that you can literally the capacity to learn from building to building from project community to project community is so profound um, because it has this arc and it does literally have a community that is, you know, woven into that story. So what I, what I found um, my team and I were doing was we were going on a journey with every project that we would then carry the legacy of that journey and invested at the very beginning of the next project so that we would inform each project with 
what I'd say was the, the precious learning capital of the past project so that each project could actually get better and easier. And this capacity to carry that precious human learning capital from one project to the next project and then add more to it and then carry it on to the next project um, gave me an insight into a, a few key things. One is that um, any one team uh, can only carry the burden of so much uncertainty and risk and, and learning pressure. And if you can sort of daisy chain projects together and distribute the, the burden of, of the, the risk taking that is absolutely intrinsic to taking on new innovation, um, new design strategies, new technologies, new team processes, you can't expect any one team to, um, you know, take on infinite um, levels of uncertainty and risk. So, so I think what the green building movement was able to do over many years was go through this kind of deep continuous learning journey that we, each project could make its learning contribution into the pool and make future projects just that much easier. Um, freeing up that learning capital to now be invested in the, the next frontier. And I think um, this was really important for me to understand a lot more about how, to, how adults can learn together and mm. how we can really design learning journeys for ourselves that don't end up burning us out and breaking us. Because um, the other facet that I saw and that moved me a great deal, um, and it always does, is that underneath any formal team process, formal project, and all of the very logical linear planning apparatus that we deploy to achieve our productive ends, underneath that is a whole other world of very vulnerable human, psychological, emotional, relational dynamics that are biologically um, our reality. And that you see time and time again, the way that we continue to ignore our own biology and enforce these mechanisms that are designed for, to drive efficiency and accountability and productivity. Um, and if you're really paying attention you can see how often those mechanisms um, are actually causing enormous amounts of wear and tear on the trust between people, um, on the psychological safety of, of people, um, and literally on the humanity that is inside that story. Um, so one of the, I think, most important things I learned at Harvard was to perceive this duality between our official stories and our official mechanisms for driving ourselves forward in organizations. So our formal hierarchical structures, our formal mechanisms for accountability and control and management. And, and perceive those, but also the duality of, well, there's actually a whole other 
reality going on at the same time, which is more human and biological, that is about our human connection with one another and what's moving in, inside ourselves. What are we, we experiencing in ourselves and what are we experiencing in our relationships? And that's running on a very different set of algorithms to these formal systems and structures that we continue to try to drive into our teams and organisations. And I really noticed, um, hands down, the building design and construction processes that had the healthiest outcomes and the, the most successful sort of breakthrough innovations were the ones that were able to foster the most psychological safety, the healthiest team relationships, um, because those imbued the team with more resilience to handle uncertainty, to be um, positive in the face of failure and to have the resilience to fail forward and to learn by doing. And that um, quality, that heart and those emotional resources that you need people to bring don't come from um, enacting top-down control and, man and management um, structures. They come from fostering team dynamics, psychological safety, and having social and emotional intelligence being valued and utilised in the journey. Um, and this is what is so highly translatable from the green building movement. So many of our lessons there translate to every other sustainability enterprise that we have to um, step up to. Um, and I think often those of us that are steeped in the green building industry sector movement don't realize the enormous value that we can bring to other arenas of sustainability. And we um, don't, I, I, I would love to see more translation of the hard won leadership lessons learned in the green building space, translating that across to other sustainability efforts that might be a little bit younger in their development. That's a really good point, especially because it does feel like in some ways, one of the advantages that we have as a community is that we've been a community for longer and we've been working on some of these things. But I also just want to say it really resonates with me. I was speaking with someone earlier today who is the head of sustainability for a real estate company. And he was talking about how the most important thing you need as a sustainability person in a company is essentially great people skills. It's the ability to really cultivate relationships and understand people and communicate well. And I, I think, um, so, so it's, it's very cool to hear you talk about that because I can see how, how, how the parallels play out, um, how that dynamic plays out in so many facets of what we, what we do. And so I want to ask you, well, maybe more specifically, but I want to ask about your work these days um, and what you're excited about working on. What What is going on for you in the work with Harvard? How is it all uh, progressing? <laughs> I guess maybe a progress narrative is not necessary, but, you know, what's on your mind these days as it relates to this work? 
Yeah, so I'm still in that journey um, in response to that very first class I took with Ronnie Harding, <laughs> um, trying to understand what what is it going to take for us to undertake the amount of, of transformation that we need to take as a species. Uh, what has been absolutely incredible for me in the last couple of years is crossing paths with the biomimicry um, team. And so um, for those of you that don't know about biomimicry, this is a very young field that really kind of burst on the scene with a book written by Janine Benyus and a, a whole sort of enterprise co-founded by Janine Benyus and Dana Baumeister, which is a field that turns our attention to a very different relationship with, with the natural world, which is moving us from a relationship of exploitation and utilization to a, a, a mentor relationship, being mentored by nature, tapping into nature's genius and engaging with nature as our greatest source of insight and leadership, frankly, um, in guiding us through this extraordinarily difficult, what I think of as evolutionary uh, fork in the road um, that we have to navigate. And one of the things that I, I always think of, which Janine once said to me, which is that we've been conditioned really, without us fully being aware of this, but we've been profoundly con conditioned by our dominant culture to, to thinking of ourselves and behaving as if we are economic entities. And how different it looks and feels when you realize that we're not economic entities, we are biological entities, and that we are sitting within um, a planet that has in front of us the legacy of 3.8 billion years of constant evolution, um, which when you start paying attention to what that actually means, it is the most profound, this is another awakening. It's, it's equivalent to the awakening that I had with Ronnie Harding's class. I've had this second level of awakening of completely changing the, the narrative that I have of the human journey into this narrative of a very young biological species. Um, and this is what Dana and Janine say so elegantly. If we were yeah, to, yeah. if we were to put the history of the earth into one calendar year, Homo sapiens turned up 24, 34 minutes before midnight on the last day of the year. And the rest of life on Earth has been here since about February is when life started on Earth. For the first couple of months, there wasn't any life in that year of the planet. And since February, life has been evolving. And we turn up 36 minutes before the last day of that calendar year. And we're a really young species and we're going through an evolutionary pressure point, um, which also from a biological viewpoint is completely normal actually 99.9% um, .9 of all species that have come to live on this planet have since perished because living here requires a very earnest enterprise of remaining fit for this context and um, what humans 
uh, of, of creating for themselves is this um, incredible experiment in culture where, you know, about two, 200,000 years ago, humans started spreading across the world and we started creating cultures that were interacting with very particular ecosystems all around our planet. Now, many of those cultures became incredibly sustainable and, and perfectly in sync with their ecosystem. Here in Australia, we have the oldest living human cultures in the world on this continent. The Australian Aboriginals had, have maintained consistent cultural integrity for 60, 80,000 years or more. Uh, an incredible cultural achievement. But at the same time, we've had other cultures that developed concepts of conquest and ownership and money and um, warfare that have overwhelmed many of these other human cultures and have swept us all up into this extraordinary cultural experiment that we're all a part of now, that now is a survival test um, for our species. And I think when you, when you transform your narrative from the, the typical sustainability narrative is humans are destructive. We've been messing everything up. Um, we've been overpopulating and we're basically a nightmare and we're going to get what's coming to us. Um, if we don't start to reduce our impact on the planet radically. That, that's a classic sort of sustainability narrative. A narrative that you come away from the biomimicry enterprise with is something more along the lines of we're a young species, we're a species, we're actually a superorganism, but by our nature, we experiment in our culture and we have been experimenting in a lot of cultures and we have currently a culture that has expressed dominance across the world that we now have an opportunity to as a species to learn from all of the other organisms around us how it is that we really can fit in to this incredibly exquisite living flow of life on earth um, we have this opportunity to learn from nature's genius all around us, from all of these, as Janine would say, mentors that have been here a lot longer than us and have mastered everything that we've mastered. You can look around the planet and other organisms have done it. Flying, done it. Complex information processing, they've done it. Clothing, um, done it. Um, territorial disputes, done it. Um, it's all around us. So to, to frame, reframe the sustainability narrative into a narrative of a young organism facing an evolutionary challenge within a world that's populated with nature's genius just waiting for us to notice, is it absolutely changes your energy about the sacredness and the beauty as much as it's, it's going to be an incredibly painful, and it already is an extremely painful journey for humankind, and most humans don't even have access to agency. Um, so we have created a pressure point of humankind that disproportionately affects the people without 
the financial resources. But those of us that are in a position to make um, a difference here in the systems and structures, I think we need to turn to the biology so yeah. that we can be turning to the sources of insight that we can trust the most. Um, if we stay inside the human bubble and only look to other humans, and if we stay inside our dominant cultural bubble and only look within our dominant culture, we are almost destined to fail. Leith, I'm so glad you talked about biomimicry. Um, I, found, I had the great fortune to learn about it uh, with Janine and Dana in Costa Rica. And it, the word awakening is exactly my experience. And it's, it really does change the entire frame. I want to shift gears just a tiny bit and ask you about um, some of the leaders that you've been working with in recent years, um, and particularly how some of the patterns of thinking that you are seeing in them and as it relates to some of these narratives and these frames that you're talking about. Um, I'm thinking in particular of this notion that um, there's a need to balance caring about sustainability and climate change and then the business imperatives that many of these business leaders, uh, you know, they, they must attend to those in some fashion. So how do great leaders, the ones you've been working with, how do they do that? Yeah. Oh, gosh, it's a brilliant question. So, um, yeah, the Leaders on Purpose Enterprise, which was originally the brainchild of Chris Giori, who was, um, took one of my classes in change leadership and then um, basically um, drew me into this extraordinary, extraordinary vision that she had of interacting with the world's top CEOs which um, basically what her vision was, was to find the top performing CEOs of the global corporations that have done the most and public facing commitment, that have exhibited the most public facing commitment around sustainability and to interview them for an hour and a half each to try to surface um, insights into the future of leadership. Because what, what she had figured and and she grew this little um, team of collaborators myself a colleague from the London School of Economics a colleague from the World Bank um, and then she continued to add um, partners to this collaboration as she went but what what we realized was um, and this is connected to biomimicry that evolutionary processes um, are fueled by adaptations that are happening usually when there's some new kind of context pressure or challenge. The context pressure or challenge stimulates the experimentation in, in an organism that then stimulates an adaptation that if that adaptation is successful, it will then um, propagate throughout. Well, that's the same for a corporate CEO. So if you find the corporate CEOs that are under those context pressures that matter, so the context pressures that we felt that mattered were the sustainability pressures. So find the CEOs that are acting as if that context pressure mattered and then go and look at what does that context pressure um, stimulate in them by way of new kinds of leadership reflex. And let's try to 
extract out those new leadership reflexes. And if we interview enough of those CEOs, can we see patterns in the new leadership reflexes that are happening at the vanguard here with, with these leaders? So we identified in our first cohort um, about uh, 20 or 25 global corporate CEOs from everywhere from MasterCard, AIG, Sodexo, Benon, uh, Pearson, Siemens, Mars, Ikea, Cummins, Hire, and, and several others. Um, and they had been handpicked, remember, because we were noticing that they're responding to sustainability as if it's a legitimate context pressure. So then we began our interviews with them. And I was, um, at the time, really wondering a lot of things about how does the leader then turn back to their own organization and transform the inside of their organization in ways that unleash greater human potentials for creativity, for um, failing forward, and for the capacity to make unlikely, unlikely leaps in the development of innovative business models? And because a lot of these CEOs, they'd inherited companies that had fairly traditional, hierarchically predominant organizational structures, which I had learned through our research leading up to this work was really a recipe for, for stifling creativity in your workforce. Um, so the questions that I had for them was, in order for them to realize any of their sustainability purpose, they were going to have to literally unleash new kinds of human potential within their own workforce and their broader stakeholder ecosystem. And how is it that they were going about doing that? And what is it that we could learn from their collective adaptations in this way? And I came away with some really clear insights from them that aligned very powerfully with a lot of what we'd learned on the ground inside institutions like Harvard, trying to bring green buildings to, to fruition, um, trying to really drive creative solutions for climate change and uh, organic food production and um, diversity and inclusion. And what it really boils down to is putting purpose in as the organized, like the two um, important organizing principles that these CEOs were starting to use more and more was the role of purpose and the importance of psychological safety and, and really using those as aligning as a, as a sort of social medium and an aligning force that they would populate throughout their organization. So increasing sense of shared of purpose and increasing psychological safety, and then coupling that with ratcheting down the role of the formal command control hierarchy and bolstering up the role of what I call the adaptive networks which are non-hierarchical networks of, of people coming together to really learn on the fly 
and to engage in very purpose-driven, um, trust-based, collaborative dynamics in order to learn and solve problems. But they, they, none of them are throwing out their hierarchy. What they're doing is they're shifting the role of hierarchy from command and control over to being in service to the purpose of the organization and the needs uh, for psychological safety and adaptive network activation um, in, in their organizations. And several of these CEOs spoke about needing both these adaptive networks and their hierarchical networks to work synergistically with one another and to kick in at different times with different roles and that in order for this to really happen with the least amount of friction um, in the organization, there had to be an increased sense of shared literacy about the role of both of these networks mm -hmm. and increased activation of purpose and psychological safety. And as they were seeing this transformation um, bubble up in different parts of their organizations, they were having their minds blown by how their employees were able to stitch together very creative business models that in the end were profitable and um, provided good financial health for the organization. But over and over again, what the CEOs acknowledged was you had to ride through a period of uncertainty um, and you had to be willing to invest in the early experimentation and the learning um, in order to surface these unlikely connections and these very creative new business models. And there was a lot of iterating that, that had to then be allowed in the organization, a lot of what you know, failing forward where this piloting and prototyping mechanism had to be resourced um, to a much greater extent than they were used to resourcing it. And they had to get used to much faster feedback loops in their learning by doing, which correlates incredibly well um, to how nature does learning and evolution. And when I was peeling back the patterns that I was seeing in these new leadership reflexes from these CEOs and correlating it to our work in biomimicry, but also a lot of work that we've been doing in mapping how humans bring ideas to life, we were seeing very consistent recurring patterns in how organizations are having to transform themselves into habitats for humans to get into creative flow states with each other. Um, and that's, you know, really biologizing the future of organizations, which I think is a very exciting and absolutely central aspect of our evolution. Yeah, that um, honestly, I think there's so much there that we could just keep going and talking about how organizations can think about this stuff. It's so powerful to hear it and so interesting to just understand um, how how those leaders are are finding that new style of leadership and how others can learn from it. So I don't know, maybe we'll try to have you back on sometime, Lee, so you can <laughs> kind of 
help us with more, but we um, we are out of time. So we're going to, to wrap it up there. Thank you so much for all of your wisdom and all of your time today. Yeah, thank thanks you. so much, Lindsay. Thanks, Kira. And um, thanks to all of you out there on the journey. It's going to take many hands, isn't it? It is. Yeah. It is. And that's, that's why we're here, to help each other with that journey. So thank you for, for your leadership on this. Um, and with that, that is it for us this week on Women in Sustainability Design the Future. Thanks again to Acuity for hosting and to you all, our listeners. Please leave us a review on Apple. It really matters and it helps people find us. Stay safe and we'll see you next week. <laughs>